Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will begin our discussion of the illustrious reign of Harun al-Rashid. The fifth Abbasid Caliph, easily the most famous of the bunch, is a celebrated figure in many histories, including, and beyond our own sources, see his 23 years in charge of the Ummah as the apogee of the Abbasid Caliphate. It is going to take us a while to get through all we know about his storied reign, and we'll begin by introducing the esteemed figure and surveying some of the many issues he'll come up against during his time on the throne. Episode 50, Al-Rashid I have to admit, dear listener, I've found myself somewhat petrified at the daunting task which lies ahead. It's a familiar feeling. I went through something similar when it was time to cover Al-Mansur a couple months ago. There's this overbearing sense of responsibility. There's too much material for me to go through everything, and I'm not sure anyone is up for that kind of fright to begin with. On the other hand, there are only so many executive decisions that can be made about what to focus on and what to leave out, before it starts to feel like I'm editorializing, a problem which is compounded during long or controversial reigns. Al-Rashid's time in charge is both, and on top of that, since it is widely considered the pinnacle of Abbasid resplendence, we find lots of commentary on topics which are interesting in themselves, but do not contribute to our show's main subject, the Caliphate's political evolution and its implications for Arab power. I fretted about this quite a bit, And as a way of wrapping my head around the challenge, I tried to size up just how much pain Al-Rashid was planning to inflict on us. The news was better than expected. Al-Tabari's gargantuan history has about 33,000 words on our latest caliph, just under half the total used for his grandfather, Al-Mansur. It's still more than we had on Al-Hadi and Al-Mahdi combined, but since Al-Rashid lasted longer than any other caliph we've covered so far, it works out to being less material per year than his predecessors. If you're curious, you can check my math in a word count graph I posted comparing the five Abbasid caliphs we've already gone through in the episodes page on thecaliphs.com. Unfortunately, however, none of this worrying and beating around the bush counts as progress, and the only way forward is for us to dive right in. Now, you know where I usually like to start, but since we've already discussed Al-Rashid's childhood and his time before becoming caliph, I'm just going to shoot through it real quick. He was born in Rai around 766, and placed in the royal succession after his monumental victory against the Byzantines in 782. Al-Mahdi appointed Yahya al-Barmaki, a prominent client of the Abbasids and close friend of the family, as Al-Rashid's mentor, and Yahya was a sort of father figure to the young Harun. Yahya and al-Rashid both went through a terrifying ordeal during al-Hadi's reign when the fourth Abbasid caliph tried to purge his brother from the royal succession, though ultimately it was all for naught. In lieu of a detailed history of al-Rashid's upbringing, 
let me present you with a couple dramatic takes on his ascension to the throne instead. This isn't just more of my dilly-dallying. We do have plenty of other stuff to get to, but these narrations will remind us how confused and contested the oral material about the end of Al-Hadi's time was, and also introduce a couple of the commanders who will come to play a big role during Al-Rashid's reign. The prevalence of new faces and the clashing of their interests is another factor that will complicate our narrative at this point. I'll do what I can to keep things tidy, but you're going to have to meet me halfway here and commit a bunch of new names to memory. The first two are Harthama ibn Ayan and Khuzayma ibn Khazim. We'll start with Harthama's version of Harun's rise to power, in which al-Rashid was not merely being pressured by al-Hadi to give up his position as next in line, he was languishing in his brother's dungeons. Harthama was a committed Abbasid commander who always stood firmly by the caliph, and his advice to al-Hadi was that the only way to install his son as next in line was to literally eliminate the competition by executing al-Rashid. We're told this option was under serious consideration when the caliph fell ill and died, and that Harthama felt so bound by the order of succession that he personally went to al-Rashid's cell to both release him and pledge his undying support. Khuzayma's version is very, very different. This esteemed member of the Abna was the son of the indefatigable legendary general Khazim ibn Khuzayma. While Khuzayma did have military experience, he'd most recently served as a police chief in the capital during al-Mahdi's time in charge. Anyway, in this narration, Harun al-Rashid wasn't in jail. He was somewhere far away, having obtained the caliph's permission to go hunting before absconding altogether in order to escape his brother's coercion. When al-Hadi suddenly passed away, his advisors panicked about the implications of al-Rashid coming to power and what vengeance he might seek against them. In a last-ditch attempt to avert his rise, all these prominent figures, men like the Hajib al-Fadl ibn Rabia and others from the caliph's inner circle, publicly pledged their allegiance to al-Hadi's intended heir, his seven-year-old son, Jafar. Khuzayma, seeing this for the self-serving gesture that it was, could not bring himself to buy into the charade. He took 5,000 loyal men, stormed the palace, dragged the child from his bed to the mosque's pulpit, and ordered him to renounce his claim to the throne. This annulled any pledges Jafar had received and allowed al-Rashid to take the throne unimpeded. These two tales don't agree on enough to tell us anything substantive about al-Rashid, but they're a good reminder of the chaos at the time of Harun's ascension. They also introduced us to two characters we'll hear more about during his time in charge, but the pair are far from being the most important supporting figures. Not even close. There's a whole cast of characters that feature during al-Rashid's days. Some we've met, and others we haven't. And at the very top of that list sit the Baramika. I can't even pick a single Barmaki. The entire family is going to be super important. Now, from a strictly factual point of view, I could skip them entirely. Not because their impact will be negligible, it'll prove anything but, but because they will barely survive Harun's reign. It's quite a story, and I hope I can do it justice when I get to it. For now, we'll have to suffice with some background on the star-crossed family. They get their name from their patriarch, Barmak, 
who is said to have been the keeper of either a Zoroastrian or Buddhist temple in Belch, back when the Arabs first appeared on the scene. Either way, Barmak was a religious authority whom the locals greatly admired. While he never converted to Islam, his son Khalid did, indicating that he had entered into service for the Ummah at some point. The very first narration we find about Khalid is quite fanciful. It places him at the Umayyad court, where he cured Hisham's son of infertility using some medical voodoo he'd learned from his father. The first believable account we have of him is far plainer. It says he was in charge of distributing pay and dividing war spoils in the Abbasid army which Qahtaba had led west to topple the Umayyads. His way with people and money impressed the leadership, and Khalid began to take on bigger jobs as a tax collector than a revenue supervisor and so on. I'm being brief here, Khalid really did a lot for the caliphate, from looking after different treasuries to taking care of some provincial rebellions. He even features in one of those bogus stories about how al-Mansur replaced his heir Isa ibn Musa with his son al-Mahdi. The clever Khalid is said to have found a tricky loophole through which the caliph could have his way. Khalid kept rising through the ranks until al-Mansur made him governor of Musul towards the end of his reign. By then, he had become a trusted client of the Abbasids, and his son Yahya, a uniquely skilled administrator in his own right, became good friends with al-Mahdi when the pair were both in Rai. I've already mentioned the story about how their wives had nursed each other's babies, so the two families were obviously beyond well acquainted. Yahya held a few influential positions during al-Mahdi's time, but none topped his ultimate appointment as Harun al-Rashid's mentor. The relationship they formed would prove to be a fateful one, allowing the Baramika access to more power than anyone would have thought possible. I say the Baramika because it's going to be a family affair. Al-Rashid's trust in Yahya extended to include his sons and brothers. Yahya's brother, Muhammad, served as the caliph's hajib for a few years, and three of Yahya's four sons held important positions in the state. The baby Al-Khaizuran had once nursed was Yahya's eldest, Fadl, almost exactly Harun's age. He was the most like his father, and Al-Rashid came to depend on Fadl for pretty much all the administrative heavy lifting. Ja'far al-Barmaki, Yahya's second son, was three years younger, and became by far the closest to al-Rashid. The two were constant companions for the majority of the caliph's long reign, making their friendship the stuff of legend and the archetype for the caliph-wazir relationship. The pair are the protagonists in many of the tales Shahrazad regales her husband with in The Thousand and One Nights. Yahya and his eldest two sons, Fadl and Ja'far, will get the lion's share of our attention, but the younger pair, Musa and Muhammad, were also employed by al-Rashid towards various ends as well. Let's stick a pin in the subject for now, but continue with the wider theme of courtly personages, as there are many more of them to go through. The caliph's mother, al-Khaizuran, again returned to the fore during Harun's reign, and we're told she dominated the administration until she passed away a few years into it. It's funny how we're always told the same story, the one in which she convinces the caliph to appoint her brother Qatrif, governor of Yemen. We were originally told that it took place during al-Mahdi's time, but the tale showed up again in al-Hadi's reign, 
with the added twist that Khatrif was reassigned as governor of Khurasan. And now, with Al-Rashid, we hear both versions once more. I'm not trying to poke holes in the idea that Al-Khayzuran held any influence. I think that's pretty well established. It's just annoying that the narrations have nothing to report beyond one example of nepotism, one which I should add worked out pretty well. The Yemeni Khatrif was a great choice for the province, as he managed to unify some warring factions there and bring peace to Yemen. While our sources begrudge her the credit she deserves for her administration, Al-Rashid is said to have been proud of his mother and her contributions during his time in charge. We're told he walked barefoot in the mud and cried openly during Al-Khayzuran's funeral procession, behavior unheard of at the time. The caliph's mother passed away during Al-Rashid's third or fourth year as caliph in 789. We also hear about the death of a prominent Abbasid in that same year, the governor of Basra, Muhammad ibn Sulaiman. He came up briefly last time as the main commander responsible for the Abbasid response to the Hashemite uprising during al-Hadi's reign. He was rewarded handsomely for his services, and by the time he died, Muhammad ibn Sulaiman was one of the richest and most powerful men in the caliphate. Basra, Bahrain, Oman, Khuzistan, and Fars were all part of his domain. He even governed Sindh for a while during al-Mahdi's reign, but the province was taken from him amid charges of embezzlement. That's another topic we'll touch upon but never really cover, the insidious effects of state corruption. It's during Harun's time that we first hear of grossly self-enriching governors, Muhammad ibn Sulaiman being a prime example. Much of this behavior began sometime during al-Mahdi's lax reign, when money was plentiful and the caliph generous and distracted. We only hear about it during al-Rashid's time because the Baramika proved adept at identifying graft, which in turn led to another problem, that of expropriation. Not only was there a whole department dedicated to it, but by this point, the expropriations office was far and away the most powerful part of the state's administration, a worrisome development under any circumstances. This wasn't a problem yet, as the department still worked as intended, at least for now. The seizing of Muhammad ibn Sulaiman's assets turned out to be a spectacularly profitable affair. More than 60 million silver dirhams were recovered, and on top of the state's reclamation of his large estates and marketplaces, he turned out to have been a hoarder, with a huge pile of stuff he'd held onto from official gifts and treasures he'd plundered from Sindh, down to his ink-stained school clothes. Not everything they found was valuable, however. Apparently, he'd held on to perishable items as well, and the stink of rotten fish was pungent enough to make it into one narration about the aftermath of his dispossession. Anyway, let's not dwell on this for now. There will be other, more flagrant examples of corruption and expropriation to come. Let us instead go through a few more of the characters we're going to meet during Al-Rashid's reign. When we mentioned Muhammad ibn Sulaiman last episode, we contrasted him to his kin, Musa ibn Isa, who was dispossessed for putting two Hashemites to death after they had surrendered at Wadi al-Fakh. Having been disgraced by Al-Hadi, Musa's status was restored by Al-Rashid early in his reign. He served as governor of Egypt for a few years, then was circled between a bunch of different cities and provinces, so he might pop into our narrative every now and again, 
though never too consequentially. Who else? We've already mentioned Harthama and Khuzaima, and there are a couple more commanders you might be able to place if you have our recent-ish material fresh in your mind. The nephew of Ma'an ibn Za'idah al-Shaybani, the one who avenged his uncle's assassination by leading a massacre of Karajites from Bust to Baghdad, Yazid al-Shaybani, played a role in al-Rashid's armies. As did Dawood, the son of Yazid al-Muhallabi, general of the 60,000-strong army sent by al-Mansur to Afriqiya to put down its Ibadi Karajites once and for all. While it can be fun to recognize some of the connections, don't worry if these all sound like new names to you. I'll point out anything actually relevant to our story as we go along. I'm just trying to highlight some of the many commanders Al-Rashid came to rely upon during his long reign, because I'm next going to introduce the many adversaries they faced in battle. So far, we've been focused on the inner workings of the administration, that is the caliph and those close to him. Admittedly, that does make up a major chunk of Al-Rashid's history, but unlike his brother and father before him, this caliph also maintained an active foreign policy. Maybe that's not the best way to put it. What I mean to say is that he kept his armies busy because there was a lot of war. To continue working our way out from the inside, we'll start with the Karajites, disaffected Muslims who had renounced the caliph. Major rebellions in Khurasan and Jazeera took place during Harun's time, the first due to misadministration, the second because of the province's seemingly inherent tribal character and general lawlessness. Syria and Egypt also registered periods of insurgency for similar reasons and had to be dealt with at various points. But all these problems were small fry compared to the chaos further west, in Ifriqiya and beyond. Out in Morocco, it won't just be any Karajite ideology that takes hold, but a whole new Hashemite dynasty, started by one of the survivors of the clan's latest massacre during Al-Hadi's short reign. Another survivor of the Hashemite loss at Wadi al-Fakh was holed up in Daylam, and Al-Rashid will have to deal with his rebellion as well. So that's most of the internal stuff. But it's Al-Rashid's external campaigns that the caliph is remembered for best, especially his glorious and well-propagandized war against the Byzantines. During his decades-long reign, he overlapped with two emperors and an empress, all of whose armies he beat soundly. Constantine VI was the nominal emperor when Al-Rashid first came to power, but he was too young for the Byzantines, and his mother and co-ruler, Irene, had run the show ever since he first succeeded his father when he was nine years old. She was the one who had agreed to pay the caliphate tribute after Al-Rashid's successful campaign during Al-Mahdi's reign. The mother and son wrestled for power as the boy approached maturity. The young emperor gained the upper hand around 790, but by 797 the tide had turned against him, and we hear that his mother had his eyes gouged out, then sent her son into exile. Irene herself was overthrown five years after that, by her ambitious finance minister, Nikephoros. While the Byzantine forces were understandably disadvantaged by the imperial power struggle in the first ten years of Harun's reign, they never really did any better afterwards. Under both Irene and Nikephoros, known to the Arabs as Rina and Naqfur, they struggled to match the Ummah's armies, 
and al-Rashid extracted great wealth, prestige, and legitimacy from trouncing the Byzantines on the battlefield time and again. There were other foreign adventures that bear mentioning, though none quite as grand as the war between the Caliphate and the Empire. The Khazars mounted another invasion of the Ummah, and while this one was the most devastating one yet, it also proved to be their last hurrah. But looking beyond these traditional rivals to the Ummah, we hear of a collegial relationship between al-Rashid and a distant ruler in the land of the Franks, Charlemagne. There's good reason to believe that the two exchanged letters, ministers, and gifts, and while some histories claim the pair tried to engineer a pincer assault on the Byzantines, if that's true, it never came to anything. I'd say it's ironic that the grandson of Charles Martel, the general who had defeated the Umayyads and Dalusian forces in France, was now trying to get in league with the caliph to protect and advance his interests, but that's just regular politics for you. I've been trying to arrange the many themes we'll come across during al-Rashid's reign into some kind of narrative flow, but I can be honest and admit that it's been a bit of a mishmash so far. We've done stories about the caliph's rise to power, the Baramika, al-Khayzuran, official corruption, commanders he relied upon, and the enemies they fought. Well, there's three more themes to go, and I'm just going to tell you what they are right now, then go through them. I want to say more about how our sources remember al-Rashid, and what descriptions and characteristics they ascribe to him. This isn't exactly a theme, but I'm sure we'll gain more insight into his personality as we go through his reign more rigorously. The second is only tangentially relevant to the perspective we're taking on this history. It has to do with the intellectual flourishing of the caliphate during al-Rashid's reign. It's a fascinating subject, and for anyone interested in a deep, deep dive into Arab thought, I highly recommend checking out Peter Adamson's podcast, The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. He dedicates over 75 episodes to the subject, which incidentally was also the topic of his doctoral dissertation. The final theme, as ever, is that of succession, and it will definitely get its own episode, as it will be a very complicated and consequential affair for all involved this time around. So let's start with descriptions we find about al-Rashid in our sources. Since his time in charge was a sort of golden age for the caliphate, we end up with a little bit of a contradiction here. We've already learned that when the Arabs especially approved of a caliph, they could come up with no higher praise than to deem him pious and to fawn over his service to the faith and the faithful. Al-Rashid has plenty of that sort of material about him in the histories we're following. There are narrations which say that he prayed 100 times a day, and ones about how he gave a thousand dirhams to the poor daily as well. We find similar exaggerations of other religious duties and virtues, and while I'm sure they're almost all over the top, I have to believe that he led the Hajj nine times during his reign, a record that would be impossible to fake and still have this kind of consensus around. Still though, some accounts aren't satisfied and embellish this already admirable record by saying that on any given year, Al-Rashid led either the Hajj or an army against the Byzantines. His charity, Modesty, justice, sagacity, generosity, conscientiousness, and other traits, I'm sure, were also very exaggerated. Many of these descriptors had some truth to them, but others were just patently false. 
I say this because his reputation for piety stands in direct contrast to his lifestyle, which we hear was lavish beyond comparison. Let me slow things down for a second and turn back the clock to more austere times. Al-Mansur was a serious man, and he had no inclination to waste his time on frivolous pursuits. His hard work built the caliphate his son would come to inherit, and Al-Mahdi's love of entertainment is well attested to. Our sources insist that he was pious, and the furthest they'd go was admit that he allowed alcohol at his many parties, but they hastened to add that he personally refused to consume any. The vices they ascribe to him are an excessive love for poetry and song. Muhammad ibn Sulaiman, the Abbasid hoarder whom al-Rashid had dispossessed after his death, had once tried to hide a skilled singer from the caliph because he knew al-Mahdi would snatch him right up as soon as he caught wind of his talent. That's exactly what happened. Al-Mahdi had such a passion for song that he kept many singing women in his harem, and two of their children with the caliph grew up to be quite skilled in the art. He's said to have kept a harem of around 30 women, most of whom were singers and not wives, though he did marry at least five according to one account. We don't know enough about Al-Hadi to pass judgment. We only hear the sources say that he was the first Abbasid caliph to openly drink wine. Well, we have plenty more material on his brother, Al-Rashid, and some of it describes the many pleasures available to our latest caliph. He had all sorts of wines at his disposal, apple, grape, and date being favorites in no particular order. His harem boasted hundreds of women. How many is unclear, though the highest quoted figure is 400, all of whom, it seems, he claimed conjugal rights to. Despite all this libertinism, Al-Rashid still had a favorite wife, but this kind of behavior had become so normalized by then that we're told she also gifted him women for his harem from time to time. All this, and one narration still has the gall to insist that he was the shyest and most modest of all the caliphs. But to move on to cleaner material, Al-Rashid was also the first caliph reported to have enjoyed playing sports and chess, and is said to have inherited Al-Mahdi's love for poetry and music. Anyway, I don't want to belabor the issue, because Al-Rashid did not get so carried away with these indulgences that he abandoned his responsibilities as caliph. He lands somewhere between his father and grandfather. He partied and relied on advisors like his dad, but he also had a vision for the caliphate, and refreshingly, an appreciation for how much power he truly wielded. The topic of the Ummah's cultural and intellectual efflorescence is worthy of a lot more attention than I plan to give it, so my main struggle with the subject has been whether or not I want to say anything about it at all, as a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Ultimately, I decided if I warn you enough, I can afford to say a few words. So here goes. Harun al-Rashid was a great patron of the arts and sciences, and all sorts of renowned experts graced his court. The Arabic language was blossoming now that Al-Farahidi's student, Sibaway, had formalized its grammar, making it accessible to the multitudes who were interested in picking it up. One of the consequences of the Abbasid revolution was that the caliphate no longer had a default preference for Arabs over all other ethnicities, like back in Umayyad days. This incentivized many from the non-Arab populations to learn the language, as they could now hope to be treated as more than mere conquered subjects. 
while conversion to Islam still bestowed certain privileges, it no longer required an Arab sponsor, to which a convert must pledge. So converts were no longer considered Mawadi, expected to obey their host tribe. Previously, the sponsor tribe would instruct the Mawadi in Islam, but this role now fell to religious teachers, basically anyone whose opinion was respected, usually because they'd studied under some prominent jurist or instructor. The role of this religious class in society grew as the most popular teachers attracted larger and larger followings, and there was considerable thought dedicated to theological rhetoric and debate. That's not to say the subject dominated intellectual activity in the Ummah. Pursuits like philosophy, medicine, astrology, chemistry, mathematics, translation, and language more generally were all pursued fervently. It's hard to say how much of this was directly due to al-Rashid's patronage and how much was just cultural momentum. But the caliph did establish the first paper mill in Baghdad, so there's a direct contribution for you. It's largely the growing political relevance of the religious class that will play a role in our show. But please keep in mind that what I've just told you is not nearly enough to properly assess the intellectual scene at the time. Take everything you just heard with a pinch of salt, and maybe check out Peter Adamson's awesome podcast. Finally, we're going to have a lot to say when it comes to al-Rashid's succession a subject that had become recurrently problematic for the Abbasid caliphs. It's going to go pretty disastrously this time around, but we will leave the details for when we cover the topic in its own episode. For now, just know that it mainly came down to the issue I highlighted last time, about how the Abbasids found it wiser to appoint two heirs, just in case. It's odd that al-Rashid did the exact same thing after all his brother had put him through, but then again, This is a man who forgave his brother's advisors, the same ones who recommended he be removed, and in some accounts killed, then appointed them to powerful positions in the state. I guess sometimes the problem is just too obvious to see. Thank you for bearing with me through that bumpy list of themes I'd cobbled together. Might be a little confusing or overwhelming right now, but the idea is to make better sense of all these important elements as we go through al-Rashid's reign more closely. The caliph cuts a fascinating figure. It's not often that we come across a man about whom we have more myth than fact, and a myth this entertaining is even more of a rarity. I'll try to strike a balance between the informative and the enjoyable in our next few episodes on the unique Harun al-Rashid. Here on the caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. (laughs) 